welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I'm joined again by my friend Stephen Fairchild to continue our conversation on Kislovsky's Colors trilogy. We started with Blue, the movie about freedom, and now we are moving on to the centerpiece, which is about equality, white. Hello, Stephen. Thanks a lot for joining me again. Thanks for doing this project. How are you? And please run us through the plot to begin our conversation. Yeah, of course. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back. It's again a pleasure. Um, But yeah, I will jump right in here. So White, the story of equality, is the most comic of the three movies, possibly most comic of all Kozlowski's films. It starts in a courtroom at the Palais de Justice in Paris, where Carol Carol, a Polish hairdresser, is being divorced by his wife, the French woman Dominique, on the grounds that he never consummated the marriage. So she airs all this publicly and humiliates him pretty deeply in court. And shortly thereafter, he finds that his access to his bank account has been cut. And so after a failed attempt to reunite with Dominique, she ends up threatening to call the police on him for setting fire to her hair salon. After that happens, he's compelled to beg for money in the Paris metro, where he comes into contact with Mikolai, a fellow Pole who recognizes the song that he's playing on his comb to beg for money. And they come up with the plan to take Carol back to Poland in Carol's luggage, which Mikolai would check on the plane, if Carol is willing to kill Mikolai when he returns home. Mikolai is unhappy, even though he has a family and a job. He's a very skilled bridge player with an excellent memory, but he's still unhappy. And Carol reluctantly agrees. But before he can fill his end of the bargain, the two are separated when the airport personnel steal the bag that contains Carol. Eventually, after being beaten by the thieves, returns home to his brother and plots revenge on Dominique, essentially by planning to make a fortune and framing her for his murder. And he makes his fortune buying and selling appliances. He does succeed in his plan for revenge, but when she's imprisoned for apparently murdering him, he visits her at the prison and finds that he still loves her. And the film closes as each film in the trilogy does on a face that is both smiling and crying at the same time. Yeah, as you said, this is the most comical film in the trilogy, and it's also the only one that just deals in humiliations. It's amazing from the beginning and brings up this problem. As I said, the way Kislovsky looks at the stories he deals with is, he says, abandonment is what describes our situation. Now, in the case of freedom, that turned out to be loneliness, and we see different characters, how they deal with it in blue, but especially the protagonist. In the case of equality, the problem of abandonment emerges as revenge, and just like in blue, we see a character faced with a tragedy, in that case of a technological character. How do you deal with this bad luck? You have to have some reaction to it, and that's how you get the plot of blue. The plot of white starts from dealing with a political tragedy, this divorce, and uh, Carol Carol then has to deal with it. And just like the previous movie had this structure that the protagonist first had to abandon everything about her life and then to resume those responsibilities, those duties, those relationships. So also here, first of all, Carol has to lose everything and then he has to gain everything. 
except that he has this terrible plan unlike julie in blue he's a man with a plan he has thought things through and he can act on his thinking it's harder to say in this case that the same character is there throughout the movie because in the beginning carl looks like a complete loser Mm -hmm. his wife humiliates him in court he can't really defend himself he doesn't even know how to react he feels betrayed but on the other hand she's not lying the laws in this case deal with the exposing of the fact that he's impotent. This shouldn't be happening. This is not something you want to bring out in public, right? Justice requires him dealing with public things, not private things. You don't want to breach that gap. Well, there it is. And then, because he fails to make love to her, he has become impotent. She cuts off his bank account, and so he goes to a bank where they symbolically castrate him again by cutting this card in front of him. (laughs) (laughs) And he ends up in the streets, is miserable until he meets Mikolai, at which point his self-esteem shockingly comes back and he says, you know, let me show you this beautiful wife of mine because by accident (laughs) they're just in this train station under her apartment. So they get out of the train station and uh, Mikolai makes fun of him. Do you mean Brigitte Bardot in uh, The Contempt, this uh, 63 movie, there's a poster for it on a billboard? No, right next to it, this apartment. And what happens in that apartment? In shadow play, you see that she's already taking a lover. And that's a hilarious, but again, humiliating moment. And he can't help himself. He calls her and she just has says perfect timing, Carol. And she just starts moaning in mid-coitus for his benefit. And that's the situation as he goes to Poland. As soon as he gets there, he gets kidnapped in the bag and beaten the hell out of and dumped in a landfill. It's winter in Poland and all of a sudden you have this series of comic accidents that also seems to reproduce the story of Job. The man lost everything and is abandoned on a trash heap. Why doesn't he just die? What is keeping this man alive? Yeah, it seems to be the desire for revenge, the desire to make himself equal to his beloved. And this, I think, is meant to parallel the situation of Poland at the time that the movie was made, which is right after the fall of the Berlin Wall, after the fall of the Soviet Union, as Eastern Europe is seeking to join the European community, is seeking to be accepted by the Western countries, the Western governments. And this means essentially accepting liberalism, accepting capitalism, accepting commerce as a way of life. And at this time in the so-called development of the Eastern communist countries of Poland, the rule of law was not as strongly entrenched as it was in Paris and France. What dominates in Paris is the law court, the trial, where Dominique's revenge is legally formalized. The first thing we have in Poland is the absence of the of law, is the, the beginning of kind of capitalist mentality, I think is what Kieslowski is trying to say is what's, what's going on at this time in Poland, but freed from the restraints of the rule of law. So we have these airport personnel who notice the heavy bag containing Carol and thinks it must contain something valuable, and so they try to steal it and appropriate it for, for their own advantage, but it ends up containing something of no value. A human being with who doesn't even have a nice watch. His watch is from Russia. <laughs> and he, all he has is the two francs, which the subway teller in, in Paris gave to him after the phone took his money. And so this is the situation in Poland at this time. And the relationship between Carol and Dominique stands in for what's going on more broadly. 
Eastern Europe has to, to become part of the future, to become part of modernity. It has to accept capitalism and competition and forget its old ways. And I think another sign that this is what's happening is the blinking neon sign on the barbershop of Carol's brother that we see when he first gets back. Uh, obviously, neon signs are most prominent in Las Vegas, but something that I think is being introduced into Eastern Europe at that time and is a sign of things to come. Yes, that's very much true. We have this strange shift in time. As you put it, when Carl Carl gets back to his native Warsaw, he finds a strange country, a country that has modernized, that's much more like the place he had left Paris than the place he had left for Paris, which was Warsaw. He's not an impressive guy. He's not big, he's not strong, he's not that handsome. There's not much to attract. He's a plain man. He seems to be an everyman. Mm -hmm. And you wonder, how did he end up marrying this gorgeous woman? Dominique is played by Julie Delpy. Well, he's a great hairdresser, it turns out. In his native Warsaw, <laughs> he's in much demand in various places behind the Iron Curtain. He won competitions. He has some legitimate pride because people want their hair cut. People want to look beautiful because the beautiful is lovable and he can deliver that for them. But he failed to satisfy the desire of his wife as a wife rather than this desire for beautiful hair. She runs a salon in Paris. There's no reason to believe that he's not good at cutting hair in Paris, but he has become impotent because he's not ready for this modern life. He's a disappointment to everybody, as you put it, including the thieves who steal him in a bag. <laughs> he disappoints every desire. But, as you also put it, there is this two-French-franc coin. Well, that's the moment when he becomes a man. This little piece of technology, the phone he uses to call his wife, which leads to further humiliation, eats up two of his francs, his last money, and he's had enough. And so he just goes to the teller and demands in an angry way that he should get his money back. When the thieves make fun of these two francs of his, he starts fighting. Mm -hmm. They beat him up. He's not much of a man. But you see the manly spirit in him, the spirit of revenge. He will stand up for himself. He will stand up for his own demand what's right and this would seem to lead him to the insight that equality is tit for tat now it's very important to realize that his wife's divorcing him because he failed her didn't do that she denies him his desires because he denied her her desires that didn't teach him anything because he loves her he'll take whatever abuse it took this kind of impersonal abstract meaningless theft of the machines, the contempt of the teller in the metro station in Paris, the contempt of these thieves who want to steal from him and hold him in contempt because he's not even worth stealing. This is what it takes to get his spirit of revenge up and then for him to claim that equality amounts to something. But then he has to transform into this modern world that he left behind in Paris, right? He has to get with the times, become a moneymaker himself. Yeah, and the first thing he does to do that is he doesn't have any money, so he needs to get some. And he starts by working for money exchangers. Again, a job that would have been unthinkable prior to the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now money is coming across the border. Now we have all these opportunities for different sorts of commerce. And that leads to his next move his bosses, these money exchangers, plan to sell land for an Ikea warehouse. He overhears this plan and beats them to the punch, convinces some of his telepoles to sell them their land, which he'll then sell to Ikea, mass manufacturer of cheap furniture. 
So he acquires the initial capital for the business he's going to start, bringing his friend Nikolai in on. And what this business does more specifically is buy appliances and electronics that have been returned and sell them at a higher price once the market is ready for them to be sold at a higher price. So this is a very American way to make a living. And this is how he does it. This is how he makes himself appealing to the liberalism of Western Europe, how he ends up fitting in. It's no accident that he has to, I think, cheat out his fellow countrymen of their land in order to get to this position. I mean, it's not even symbolic. It's literally the forgetting of one's ties to one's own nation and one's own countrymen in order to make something of oneself and make one's fortune. Yeah, so that Karl Karl was not much of a patriot, we knew since he went around the world at hairdresser competitions and went to marry this woman and work in Paris. If you have an art that can be applied in any part of the world, it doesn't have any connection to any people. And so to begin with, he would seem to be way more about the beautiful than about the just. It's just that this bites him in the back, it turns out, because justice is still there, and in the guise of French justice, he's humiliated and evacuated from his life and property and all his expectations. And so he makes a shift from the beautiful to the good. He doesn't do it by his art as a hairdresser. He does it as you put it. He hires out as a guard to a moneymaker. That's how he gets his hands on his first gun. He's told, don't worry, it just shoots gas, not bullets. But still, dollars and guns in the streets of Warsaw are a new thing. It's all done publicly. It's a new world that he wants to be part of. His brother, he stayed behind. He didn't go around the world. He didn't go to France. He's not getting into the money-making business either. He's an old-fashioned kind of Pole. A patriot. Then there are these other people from whom he buys lands. We see him buy an expensive bottle of vodka and cash on the barrel. You drink all night to the guy and at the end of the bottle he'll sign on the line that is dotted. <laughs> and yeah, there's something very American about this. It shows you that capitalism makes you into a new man. Carl Carl starts dressing expensively and he has his hair slicked back every day. <laughs> so, sort of a minor gangster creature now. You have to be on the move and you have to be on the make in this new world. Nobody's going to help you out. You can't really trust anybody. And so you do this. And also, right, the business he's in is similar to the plan he's made up. He wants to bite his time for revenge, just like he bites his time with the stuff he buys to resell. Rejected things will return as valuable in his business as also in his plan. So it turns <laughs> out that there are moral implications in our capitalism that we might not be aware of. Speculating in land, speculating in currency, all of these things are correspondence in the element of the good of what we see with Carlos' dedication to his art in the element of the beautiful. They're not really about loyalty and you can't really trust them. Yeah, I think it's one of the virtues of Kieslowski that he's able to show this to us. And it's a sign, I think, of his wisdom and maturity. I mean, it shows his freedom from any sort of partisanship. He wasn't exactly thrilled about the communist regime. I mean, he spent his career documenting many of the problems that the communist bureaucracy posed for his fellow Poles. But at the same time, he's not going to jump on the anti-communist capitalist bandwagon and give a pay on to the free market. I mean, he has the wisdom to see it from a distance and I think to show it honestly to us and also to his fellows who are in the process of being modernized and westernized, to show them to themselves. Yes, 
in blue he shows remarkable sympathy for the individualism of the capitalist democratic west and in here he shows as much sympathy for the plight of the fast democratizing capitalizing eastern half of europe where people don't really have much choice you have to get on with the modern world there is no alternative but that doesn't make it very good or very wise it's something that is imposed on people and that will humiliate them and that it will make them angry they will seek revenge. It will not be possible not to be humiliated because they cannot be really equals as Poles with the French. Mm -hmm. The rich will not be equal with the poor. The powerful countries will not be equal with the weak. And it's not clear that there's much possibility of a relationship of right that could be described as generosity and gratitude. The start of white tells us that there's not going to be any kind of equality in that way. Again, from Christianity, we are told that there's a lot of equality in a marriage. For example, neither party is free to destroy it, although that's obviously gone away. But there's no equality in the marriage of Dominique and Carol. The haughty French woman ruins him because he dared to disappoint her. That presages the drama of Western and Eastern Europe, as we see now, France and Germany rather hate Poland and Hungary. And Poland and Hungary are also in the position of being benefited. They need the money, the institutions, etc. But they cannot be grateful for it because they are held in contempt. So this is going to be very fractious. But further, Kislovsky escalates the problem by showing you that you cannot leave it at the basic insight of revenge and equality as justice, that is, tit for tat. She ruined him through the laws, he's going to ruin her through the laws. He wants to frame her for his murder. <laughs> Obviously, he's never given up his attachment to the beautiful. It's a very dramatic notion to get into your head. He will give her an equivalent of what she did to him. She ruined his life. She annihilated his being. Well, how is she going to like it when he's dead? And you can see in there a certain attachment. The fact that he can't leave it at tit for tat, which wouldn't be possible anyway, since they are divorced. It's not like he can divorce her back. Right. It shows that he wants to get a rise out of her. He wants to hurt her back. And so he can't leave. He has plans to just get rid of this whole European problem. Since, as we said, he's not a patriot to begin with. He's going to go to Hong Kong. Yeah. <laughs> Just live this other life. Be a stranger perpetually. But he can't. He sticks around to see what she's like. And it turns out that she cries at his funeral. And then he seduces her again. And she feels it's great that he's alive after all. Because on her terms, nothing really bad really happened. She just finally got what she wanted. She had to go through the suffering of thinking him dead and then got the relief of seeing him back alive and indeed amorous. But from his point of view, things haven't changed. She hasn't been humiliated. He hasn't paid her back. There's no equality. Where's the equality? And so he does have her arrested and sent to jail. <laughs> so it turns out that once you start these things, it's going to be very, very difficult to deal with them. You cannot take away either from the beautiful or the good their connection to the just. Yeah, and, and he does this after he reveals, has regained his potency by making himself equal to what she wants. Yes, and it seems that it's only justice that can really withstand the rule of desire. As you put it in your essay, he runs away from the salon in Paris with a bust he always gazes at that seems to remind him of his lost wife. He teaches himself French mm -hmm. just to talk to her, presumably to say, I told you so, you know. 
but he falls asleep listening to the conditional would that I had pleased. Yeah. He can't let go of that. It was a possibility, but it's not a possibility anymore. It's a possibility in the past. It's the perfect. That's the thing that he cannot let go of. He cannot be himself if he lets go of justice, if he doesn't take revenge, because he would have been hurt and cannot restore himself and cannot hurt somebody back to show that he, though hurt, is not inoffensive. It seems this could be brought to some good end because he realizes how attached he is to her. He has to suffer again in a way, his deprivation from her. While she's in jail, she has to suffer deprivation for him. This is perhaps the strangest part of the story. Nobody would tell you that if you want some counseling or marriage therapy, the way to get to happiness will involve a Polish prison. <laughs> this is outrageous, but fits the comic tone of the story. And there is a certain element of seriousness both in the crying and in the fact that they can only make gestures to each other, or rather she makes gestures to him and he acquiesces from a prison window. And that involves certain things. He goes there because he longs for her. How is she there at the window? How does this accident make any sense? Only if she was longing for him as well. Only if her revenge in the first place was not an act of separation, really. And that would seem to take up with the problem we had seen in the first movie. People really are tempted to abandon each other. They do not realize that their acts of mutual abandonment that lead to loneliness are a desire for revenge, for disappointed desires that come together with the wish to have pleased and to have been pleased. Mm -hmm. And this would seem to be what is revealed here and why you would have to talk about equality starting from the problem of revenge. This has to do with Kislovsky's peculiar insight, which we see often in modern art, not that it is unique to modern art, that it is in the absence of something that you begin to know what it is. This is a movie about frustrated desires that are supposed to reveal the character of desire, the strength, the endurance of it, the corresponding object that arouses it, and also what we could call its existential character. This involves destroying marriages, faking deaths, going to jails, these incredibly harsh events, and they portend something. Desire is tied up with the fact that we rebel against mortality and dealing with desire somehow would have to give an account of what our lives are for. Equality is part of what our lives are for. It would be the public or the justice aspect of it, but it cannot be all of it. Desire points to something else than taking revenge or being equal. It also points to whatever equality or partnership might be found in marriage, in love, that is to say in looking for happiness. That seems to need to be chastised by laws, since people would otherwise be too individualistic, but it could not be reduced to laws, since the formality of the laws precludes saying anything meaningful about any particular person. We're stuck being the embodied persons we are, resentful of our mortality, desirous of something that will complete it. Equality mm -hmm. would be that, mutual completion, which is the possibility that's brought up at the end, but it's not clear how things will turn out any more than it is in the first movie. We hope for the best there's some reason to believe that things will improve, but you don't know how things will turn out. Yeah, and I think there's a striking contrast between the revenge both of Carol and of Dominique uh, with the freedom from revenge of, of Julie. I think we're tended to contrast the two situations because they literally overlap. Near the very end of Blue, when Julie is looking for the mistress of Patrice, 
She goes to the Palais de Justice to look for her. She's an aspiring lawyer. I think she's a law student. And when she's there looking for her dead husband's mistress, we're not sure at this point what she has in mind, whether she means to confront the woman and take some sort of revenge on her or what. That's our initial assumption about what's motivating her. Anyhow, so as she's there, she walks in on the trial that we see at the beginning of White, where Carol is complaining about the language barrier that separates him from Dominique and that seems to be preventing him from getting a fair hearing in this French court. So the sight of the revenge in White, the stories overlap. You make a very good point. Julie starts with a catastrophic loss that is not tied up with any kind of political context. It's a technological failure. And so she doesn't look for the equality of revenge, the kinds of justice that you're going to get if you take somebody to court, which means after something bad has been done to you, for which you can ascribe blame. She could blame this dead husband's mistress for adultery, but she chooses not to, presumably on the basis of that experience. That loss is not tied up with justice. Whereas in the case of Carol and Dominique, it is because of her intention to sue him. And that would seem to be because she's she's an incredibly impulsive woman. It is precisely the sort of thing that gets a French woman to go around Budapest at the end of communism that also leads her to marry a man on impulse. And they don't even speak the same language, but obviously that's not required for erotic desire or the erotic image we have of what happiness we expect in marriage. Obviously, this impulsive character is also what led to the incredible series of humiliations in the court of law, at the bank, and then over the phone in regard to the connubial bed. He seems to have put up with a lot. He's not much of a man, and she's an incredibly temperamental woman. But it turns out that he's not as weak as all that, and he would like his revenge in return. But whereas she's quick to anger, he's thorough in his anger because he's very calculated. And that was all concealed behind his weak, every man, nice guy facade. With his wife, with Dominique, everything is on the surface. You can see how she acts. She seems to have no capacity for concealment, which is why she fell in love with him and married him and also divorced him. He has a capacity for concealment. You don't have any idea that these resources are inside of him when you see him brought to his lowest. And after you sympathize with him, you begin to learn who he is only later. And he's not a nice guy. He has this capacity for revenge, for planning, for acquisitiveness as well, since he's calculated. This could work for business, it could also work for revenge. It's only being confronted with the consequences of success that he can learn what's wrong with what he's done. He has to suffer the deprivation and to realize that he's hurting himself, because otherwise hurting somebody else feels too good to refuse. That's why Dominique hurt him, and that's why he hurt her. And using the laws for these fairly petty pursuits is dangerous, but it would seem to be typical of the modern world. You know, however humiliating or humorous, implausibly complicated by way of plot, these are all typical actions. They do describe the modern world where people will abandon each other and divorce each other over nothing, because it at least gives them the satisfaction. On the one hand, they're not powerless to affect things, and on the other hand, they can take revenge for being mortal, for being limited, for being finite and subject to chance, sheer bad luck in some cases. That would seem to be also what points the story forward towards Red. I think 
incomplete in each of the stories. Just like in the case of Blue, there is a pointed abstraction from the problem of justice. In the case of White, where the problem of justice becomes central, there is a pointed abstraction from the strange character of modern life, which is mostly private. It is not mostly people taking each other to court, although we are very litigious as <laughs> modern people. But most of life is private. And it's almost impossible to account for private life in terms of justice, even the basic insight of tit for tat, which is a fascinating insight. Why wouldn't that suffice? It seems like it's precisely because of the problem that White brings up, which is we're ruled by desire. Whatever may be said of the end of history, it is hyper-erotic. People are oriented by their desires. And first we are presented with desire in this incredibly concentrated, conflictual way that limits it almost entirely to Dominique and Carol. But then we will move on to Red next time and see what desire looks like in its polymorphous perversity, as Freud would say. When it is fickle, multidirectional, it involves all sorts of people in chancy ways and confuses everything in society. <laughs> <laughs> all right, sounds good. I look forward to it. So thanks a lot for joining me again, Stephen, and let's get to it next time. All sounds good. Thanks.